Paratruth Radio is a proud member of Evergreen Podcasts on KillerPodcast.com. Christian and non-Christian paranormal investigators. They have two different views, and it seems as if neither of them can ever agree on anything. So what happens when a mainstream view of the paranormal crosses paths with the Christian view? <laughs> Something epic. This is Paratroop Radio. Hello, everybody. Welcome to a brand new episode of Paratruth Radio. My name is Eric. And I'm Justin. If you haven't yet, make sure you go on over to YouTube and subscribe to us. Check out our website, paratruth.com, and be sure to follow us on all of our social media if you have yet to do that. And also, if you're interested in joining our email list uh, for our newsletter, primarily be sure you do that you can do that on our website again paratruth.com uh just click on that little button and you'll be joined uh, we do have a new one coming out soon uh so you'll get that and then every was every quarter we end up sending another newsletter that's basically going to share all the information that we can possibly put out there about paratruth new things happening special guests that we are highlighting uh different books all that kind of good stuff things that no one else is going to know until you know we air the news on the podcast uh so you get first dibs and of course there's also things that other people will never see or hear about so make sure you definitely uh sign up for that all right so today we have on another guest. Uh, he is the co-author of Origins of the Gods. His name is Greg Little, and he has a master's degree in experimental psychology and a doctorate in counseling and educational psychology from Memphis State University. He is the author or co-author of over 30 books and 40 treatment workbooks. His first book was published in 1984 and was a follow-up of Carl Jung's uh, writings on UFOs. He is, of course, as I'd said, the co-author of the new book, Origins of the Gods, which we're talking to him about tonight. Uh, and he co-authored that with England's Andrew Collins. Uh, and the book is basically the origin of shamanism, the paranormal, and UFO interactions. There is a lot of stuff happening in this book that we're really excited to talk to uh, Greg about. So without further ado, let's go on over to the line with Greg. Greg, welcome to Paratruth Radio. We're glad to have you with us. Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure uh, doing a lot of these and love to talk about what we are doing, what Andrew Collins and I have been doing. Awesome. Uh, awesome. So we have you on to talk about Origins of the Gods. Uh, but before we get into that book, I just wanted to, to know, because you've been interested in the paranormal for quite a while, uh, what is it that inspired you uh, or really inspired your interest in the paranormal ah. in the first place? Um, I don't have an answer where I can okay. go back to childhood. I've always been kind of interested in it. Uh, I know when it, when my interest really took off and it was uh, really when I started graduate school in psychology, and this was like 1972, I had a professor in psychology. He was a psychopharmacologist, a PhD in psychopharmacology. And his wife 
was a psychiatrist, both of them out of Vanderbilt. And they took me under their wing and we began uh, doing all kinds of experiments because the new age then was really booming. You know, you could uh, bend spoons with your mind and key bending. Uh, plants could feel things. Uh, people were testing that. Pyramid power was the rage then. Uh, and pyramid power, supposedly, uh, if you build a pyramid using certain specifications and you put a dull razor in it, it would get sharpened. You could put food in it and the food wouldn't go bad. Uh, you could put plants in, in a pyramid and they would do better. Uh, and we literally tested all those. We went to hundreds of trance channeling sessions that various people did. Uh, and we tested all that out. Uh, and it was in graduate school. At the time, I was working for the Office of Naval Research on research grants, traveling around about eight weeks a year, going to Navy bases, doing uh, uh, testing Navy pilots all over the place in the U.S. Uh, but when I got back, that's uh, part of what we did. We were also doing mainstream research in psychopharmacology, morphine research on animals. But that's kind of where it took off. And I became kind of a skeptic. But as I got deeper and deeper into it, I realized that there is something very real going on here, that it's not all in your mind. It's not all hoax. There's something very real happening. Uh, so that's really kind of where I really got into it, starting around 1972, which most of your listeners will not have been alive at that time. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I wasn't even alive. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, like I said, I've been in it a long, long time uh, and just have progressed along. Uh, in my profession and professional work, uh, which I have done work in criminal justice since 1975, uh, I traveled a lot starting in around 1985. And I mean, I traveled a lot. I got interested in Indian mounds. I had already written a book about UFOs, which was a follow-up to Carl Jung's first uh, last book, uh, about UFOs. It was called Flying Saucers, A Modern Myth of Things Seen in the Skies. So I wrote a follow-up to that. It sold okay, but it didn't say what people wanted to hear. Uh, it was mainly a psychological analysis. Uh, and then it just sort of took off. I was uh, able to travel to different countries, virtually all states. I had government employees take me out. I had government employees in Washington state go with me to the Yakima Indian Reservation to look at uh, the area where all the UFO sightings went on in the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, also in Missouri, I was able to look at a lot of the Missouri UFO flap in the 60s and 70s. So yeah, I did a whole lot <laughs> over a long mm -hmm. period. You, that, I mean, to me that that's the dream that's that's amazing that you've been able to do so much work in in this field um something that you you already brought up is you you're talking about your research into pyramids um so i was kind of curious your thoughts or theories about why so many cultures throughout the world have used pyramids i mean is it a connection be between the these people or is it something a little bit deeper well, I think there is a connection between various cultures that goes way, way back in time. 
there were there was a civilizations that existed that were destroyed. Actually, Plato's story of Atlantis talked about many civilizations that existed even before Atlantis, and they were all destroyed by cataclysms, one after another. Uh, and Atlantis was destroyed by a cataclysm that was sent by the gods in retribution because the Atlanteans had become evil, basically. Uh, but I think that in ancient times, there was a maritime culture. When I say ancient times, I'm really talking about 20, 25,000 years ago, up to the time of, of the so-called destruction of Atlantis, which was right around 10,000 BC or so. Uh, so I think those cultures shared information. Uh, they kind of developed on their own. And from 10,000 BC on for probably 8,000 years or so, uh, these cultures existed pretty much in isolation from each other, but they all had the same basics to start with. Uh, and different, there's different genetics in this. Uh, there's a whole bunch of, uh, uh, I, I don't really want to call them racial groupings because it's not racial in that sense, but there's genetic lineages that are known as haplogroups in genetic research. Uh, and those haplogroups show us that they did, they did pretty much develop somewhat in isolation, but they moved around a whole lot. For example, some of the people wound up in Australia and New Zealand. So people were there probably 200,000 years ago and 50,000 years ago, some of those people made it all the way into South America. And some of them with the exact same genetic lineage are in South America today. They are tribes in South America that literally have been in isolation and still are to this day. So that's why I think that things like pyramids, uh, building with stone and so on, it's found everywhere around the world. One of the things that astonished me recently, uh, I'm probably best known in this field for writing books about Indian mounds. Uh, I wrote an encyclopedia of Indian mounds. Uh, 2009 is when the first edition came out, second edition in 2016. Uh, I'm working on a third edition now to kind of keep updating it with whatever opens up. And it's like in the Ukraine. There are 100,000 mounds that still exist today in the Ukraine that are identical to what we'd call Native American Indian mounds found all over North America today. But the same mounds are found throughout all of Europe, throughout Russia, through Siberia, uh, all over the world mounds are, are found. And the burials that are found in them are very similar. They put the same kind of grave goods in them. And this actually twists us around to the to the main topic, which is the paranormal. The book, the whole concept of the book, it's about shamanism, about the beginning of shamanism, how shamanism has interacted with the paranormal. And we know that the shamanistic rituals and the shamanistic practices that Native American Indians have practiced for tens of thousands of years are identical to those in Siberia that go back at least 20 some thousand years. They're absolutely identical. I'm not, that's not me doing the research. That comes from mainstream archaeologists and ethnographers that have done research in both places. So we know they're pretty much the same and they were all kind of tapping into the same source. I know I went a big roundabout way in, uh, in that, oh. and that's what I do with a lot of questions. There's no telling where it'll go then. So I, I'll turn it back to you then and get me on track here. No, that's well, all right. I mean, oh, sorry, Justin. Did you have something, Justin? No, I was just saying that's all right. I mean, this show is all about rabbit trails. So if you go on a rabbit trail, it, we're used to it. So. <laughs>
Yeah. <laughs> oh, by the that. way, by the way, uh, putting these, putting uh, razor blades, dull blades in a pyramid, we found it did not work. Uh, food that you put in it would rot, uh, didn't work. Uh, so the pyramid power thing, based upon what was claimed in a lot of books, there were a lot of books called Pyramid Power. That was one of the main titles that came out that said that it would work. We did it. We followed the instructions. We did it in laboratories, a fourth floor, the psychology building and what was in Memphis State University. Uh, we went to watch people bend keys, watch people bend spoons and all that, you know, with the power of your mind. We couldn't do it. When we watched carefully and gave them the spoon, they didn't do it either. But what I will say is this, the stuff about plants, we hooked philodendrons, big philodendron plants up to an eight-channel physiograph, which is the was state-of-the-art physiological uh, sensoring equipment. So we hooked up plants to that, and we ran these experiments. And one of the experiments that we did, we, we replicated it three times is that six of us graduate students got a piece of paper. Five of us, it was blank. One of the pieces of paper said, tear a leaf. So we went in the room one by one. The, the professor that was running the physiograph didn't know who had the tear a leaf thing. We went in the room one by one, and we were there for two minutes. Those of us that got a blank sheet of paper were just supposed to stand there or sit down for the two minutes. And the other person went in and tore a leaf. Then we all came out for one hour. Then we went back in one by one. And the philodendron went crazy when the person who tore the leaf came in. And that happened three separate times. And that, that actually has been published in professional literature, kind of showing that they can definitely feel or sense something. They definitely can. So that was one of the things that we did that uh, definitely showed that there is something there. That's in that's very interesting. I have not heard anything like that. So it's kind of it's kind of exciting to hear something like that because it's it's been kind of speculated. You know, just like there's a actually you, you kind of talk about it lately in the book, uh, the Earth Spirit. How yeah. there's just something within the creation that's on Earth. You know, the plants, the trees, everything. Uh, but actually, before I get too far into that. Can you just kind of define what exactly the earth spirit is? Um, well, Native Americans, I, I'll use the Native American thing. That's what I'm really into. Uh, the book, um, The Origins of the Gods, here, I'll, I'll, I'll show it. That's it. The book Origins of God is divided into two halves. Eric Bondonikin wrote the uh, preface or the introduction to it. Uh, and then I wrote the first half, Andrew wrote the second half. And in the first half, I really went into Native American, mainly mound builder and Zuni and uh, ancient Puebloan beliefs. The ancient Puebloans are the same people uh, that are called the Anazazi, but they prefer the term ancient Puebloans. So I went into those beliefs, which I knew about a lot about them anyway, but I really dug into it. There's a lot of very, very old literature on it from even the 1700s, the early 1700s on it. So what they believed was that everything is made out of spiritual energy. Everything is spirit. And uh, they actually started with a creation story. And their creation story, I'm not talking about the children's stories. I'm talking about what's called sacred knowledge. And it's not something that they share read readily. So this is kind of the deepest secret of it all. 
they said that at the very beginning, there was a singularity. That's all that existed, which is really interesting. The term, that is the term translated into the English by, uh, by an archaeologist who spent time with a fellow named Edward Red Hat, who was the high holy priest of the Cheyenne nation. And he was very old at the time. Actually, after he died, he passed his power on to a grandson named Lou White Eagle. And Lou White Eagle is where I got a lot of this information. Lou White Eagle came to Memphis uh, in 1980 and spent one month with my wife and I, uh, along with his family. But anyway, they said there is a singularity of pure spiritual energy. That's all it was. And at, the, and at some point for its own purposes that are literally incomprehensible to us, the singularity began to churn. And when it churned, almost like the yin-yang symbol, it created two opposing forces that were in balance, just like a yin-yang symbol spinning around. Of course, that's a contradiction. You can't have a singularity that is in two parts. It's then two parts. But that is what caused the Big Bang. And physics calls it a Big Bang. The Zuni called it, the Zuni actually said it was a container of all that when it developed these two forces, it thought outward into space and it expanded into space and it created the physical physical world. Uh, did you have a question there? No. Okay. I'm, I, okay. I'm, I'm just hearing things there. Uh, anyway. Okay. So this spirit, spiritual energy, everything in the universe is made out of it. Just like Carl Sagan back in the 1960s, we are all made of stars and we are, we're all stardust. So the Native Americans said everything is spiritual energy. So the earth is pure spiritual energy. The earth is actually, according to this idea, the earth is a double mirror. It's a three-dimensional double mirror, and it reflects the two powers that started out, that split the singularity. The two powers in their children's stories is an upper world and a lower world. In the sacred stories, they call the upper world basically the power of creation. Creation is where different things can be pieced together to create and make something new. That is, that is the upper world. The lower world, which is usually thought of as being bad or evil or whatever, is disorder and chaos. And in physics, it's known as entropy. Entropy, E-N-T-R-O-P-Y, for people who don't know it and want to look it up. So entropy is a truth in physics, and it simply says whatever is created from the moment of its creation, the process of entropy begins, and entropy eventually breaks everything down to its most primordial essence, whatever it is. So Earth, being a double reflection mirror, three-dimensional physical reflection, it reflects the powers of the upper world creation and it reflects the powers of the lower world entropy. So Earth is really the center point. The physical world is the center point of the interaction of these spiritual forces. It's all natural energy, just like we are all natural energy, but it manifests in a very different way. It's sort of alien to us, but we live within it. So when we interact with it, 
we are interacting with two forces all the time. We are interacting with creation and we're interacting with entropy. And think about people that get into the paranormal. Some people get into it and it can destroy their lives. They can have bad experiences. They can go off what a lot of people say is the deep end. It can terrify them. And I've seen that happen to some people. On the other hand, some people get into it and it's like the most spiritual thing ever. They pull their life together. They become very balanced and they become a lot more effective in life. So we're always interacting with this force, but this force manifests physically and can manifest physically. And that's really what the book is all about. Did that make sense? It did. Yeah. 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 Have you ever heard that explanation before? No. No. Yeah. But it is interesting that, um, that what you just described is basically what Eric and I grew up learning in Christianity. It's the exact same thing, just told a different way. Yes. Uh, it's the same thing physics says in a different way that the whole, the universe is, con- you know, it's like they're stellar nurseries where stars are being created all mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. And then we see black holes where stars are literally being disintegrated and compressed and taken down to almost nothing. But then something comes out of them. There's new creation that comes out of all that. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's the real Native American belief. That's probably the deepest belief in the entire Native American religious or spiritual culture, the most deep belief that they have. And that is not usually shared in their rituals. They, they do rituals that reenact creation. Uh, they actually, when they do these, they pull sod off of the ground. They pull the grass or sod off to expose bare dirt because soil or dirt is the most primordial form of spiritual energy totally primordial. Rocks are solidified spiritual energy. Water is flowing spiritual energy. And crystals, the purer the crystal is, the more purified form of spiritual energy there is. So they used all of those elements in their ceremony. So in order to do a real ritual, to do the most effective rituals, they literally grounded themselves in dirt by removing the sod, bare feet, and keeping their feet on the dirt and sitting on the actual dirt. They also perform dances the same way. Uh, the the bare the, the soil was, the better, the less vegetation on it, the better. Uh, this is little known to people. People go to Indian mounds and they'll see vast areas that are, they'll see trees all around them, trees on them. That's not the way it was. They burned massive areas to expose the horizon. They had huge areas and almost no trees at all within sight of these large Indian mound sites that you'll find all all across North America. Uh, And it was a way for them to literally get grounded in the earth. And it's also why North American natives built the mounds primarily of dirt, although there were some stone mounds in North America, and there still are. There's places in North America where very, very few people venture where there are literally thousands of stone mounds within very confined areas, such as around Anniston, Alabama. That's an example where there could be 10,000 stone mounds in just that one area of Alabama. But that, that's another story. Hmm. Well, going along, because, I mean, when you talk about 
I mean, you're basically talking about polar opposites when we talk about, you know, what's above and what's below. And you kind of, we kind of go into that a little bit in the book with the archetypes uh, that Carl Jung had, had come up with. Um, and now these archetypes, they are, well, it, it begins with the trickster. Um, and he goes into entities like the trickster, the Virgin Mary, fairies, demons, etc. cetera. Uh, and they all fall under this classification of archetypes. So with that said, like what exactly is an archetype and how or why did Jung uh, break them down the way that he did? And does it have something to do with this spiritual connection? Because I noticed that also there's like these archetypes are usually polar opposites or come in polar opposites. Like all except for one. Yeah. All except for one. Right. Yeah. Okay. So Jung, Jung uh, when he wrote his book on flying saucers, that he actually wrote a manuscript on it too. And he wrote a lot of letters. There's information on his letters. Jung said that, and that's why I call my first book, The Archetype Experience. He said it was an experience of archetypes and synchronicity was part of the, the equation here. And most people have misinterpreted what Jung said. Jung said that people are really seeing something. And his quote that he, that he used over and over is, something is seen, one doesn't know what. So when you see something odd or unusual and you don't know what it is, our own unconscious beliefs, our, our expectations, all of that is literally projected onto that object. For example, I'll give you the simple example. I have been out, uh, I, well, I'll give you a, a real specific example. Uh, my wife and I went down and watched the Gulf Breeze UFO, which occurred roughly 13 out of a 15-day span, 13 days out of 15 uh, off the Gulf Breeze. Uh, there's a, a shoreline park there. Uh, we saw it. I photographed it. It was a red light. lasted 90 seconds. Uh, there were 100, 108 people in the park. There were film crews there. Ed Walters, who was the originator of the um, Gulf Breeze UFO in a book that he did, he was there. He had his trunk open, selling books out of his trunk. It was very, very interesting. We saw this red light for roughly 70 seconds. Then suddenly it got white. Then it expanded to about 10 times its size. Then the light actually turned out and had these little white sprinkles all around in a circle, and then they disappeared. But everybody knew, people there knew exactly when it was going to occur. They knew when it was going to turn from red to white, and they knew the sprinkles because that's what it did every time. So there. So how does this work? Something seen, one doesn't know what. So a lot of people in there automatically said, that's a UFO, an unidentified flying object. Why? Well, it's because they believe in UFOs uh, in, their, in their belief system. They project the UFO meaning upon it. And it's a psychological process that I'll explain a different way in a, mi in a minute. Uh, to me, I, I knew this thing is being seen near Eglin Air Force Base and near the Office of Naval Research, where I had gotten my research, my research grant came from. It wasn't my grant, but I worked under it. And I visited the ONR only one time. Uh, and the guys there told me about the type of research they did. And they asked me about what I was doing because we were all about the same age. I wasn't allowed into the super secret back part of it. Uh, the colonel I was with went back in, but I sat out there with all the other researchers. So they do, I wonder what if research. And I wonder what if research is this. You get something, you have an idea and you say, I wonder what will happen if I do this. You don't really know what's going to happen. 
but you decide I'll do a little experiment, see what happens. And I think that's what the Gulf Breeze UFO was. They called it Bubba down there. That's that was its nickname. Very famous. People can Google it. Bubba, Gulf Breeze light, whatever. But anyway, uh, so that's projection. I project my own beliefs on it, which uh, is that uh, this looks like some sort of a research study. And I actually immediately turned around the audience uh, or all the people there to see if somebody was taking notes. Because I figured there's some ONR researchers in here, and they are looking at the reaction of the people witnessing this thing. That was my very first conclusion. But that's me projecting. So the way projection works, it's kind of like we have a projector in our forehead. This is literally how psychological projection works. You have a projector in your forehead, and you see something that you don't know what it is. For example... There is a song called Some Enchanted Evening, and it's all about projection. And it goes, some enchanted evening, you will see a stranger. You will see a stranger across the crowded room. And you fall instantly in love, love at first sight across the crowded room. How does that happen? Well, that person is a screen, like a movie screen. You don't know anything about that person, but what it looks like superficially. Your little projector comes on in your head and you start projecting onto that person and you're projecting, I'll bet she's nice. I'll bet she likes this. I'll bet she's whatever. And you attribute all of these characteristics to that person. That is what it's all about. And if that screen physically matches what you've already got up there in your unconscious, well, then you got love at first sight. That's how it happens. So projection Going back to UFOs now, people were seeing a disc-shaped object or round objects in the sky, primarily discs. And this was like in the late 1940s and 50s when the UFO heyday really started. So Jung said what they're seeing is an archetype in the sky, the archetype of the mandala, M-A-N-D-A-L-A, for people that, that maybe can't, didn't hear it right, mandala. mandala is usually a circle. Sometimes it's subdivided into lots of little things, but it's a unified circle and it's the symbol of the whole. Jung said every culture that has ever existed uses that circular symbol as a symbol of wholeness or a symbol of God or a symbol of unity. That's what it means. And coincidentally, at that same time in the, in the late 40s and 50s, we all at that time had this horrible fear of a impending nuclear annihilation. Everybody at the time was very fearful that Russia was going to nuke us and we were going to nuke them and World War III was going to start. Kind of like what's happening right now. But back then, people were seeing these round objects in the sky. Coincidentally, at the exact same time, they were fearful. And he said, what happened is people were projecting their desire for salvation. We want to be saved from impending annihilation. So we are projecting our unconscious contents, this desire for salvation, and the mandala is what's stimulating it upon the objects. Something seen, we don't really know what it is, but we project our own meaning onto it. So that's where that comes from. Uh, the mandala, I believe, and this is kind of what's in Jung's writing, splintered, probably at the moment of creation, 
it splintered into polar opposites. So let's talk, let's go back and talk about creation versus entropy again. Well, you have what looks like good and what looks like evil. So a trickster represents both of them. A trickster, it tricks the opposite of a trickster is a helper. All right. So a trickster always tricks you. A trickster, though, can allow you, if you interact with a trickster, it can allow you to get to a deeper level. And that's what Native American shamanism is about. Native American shamanism was about interacting with the trickster. All of the shamans said that. All of the old ethnographers found that, that, inter that dealing with shamanism is dealing with the trickster because the trickster always comes when you start. And you can be tricked by the trickster, you can be fooled by the trickster, and it takes you down the wrong path. That is what it's all about. But if you can interact with the trickster in such a way that you don't have it literally trick you, then it will give you access to a much, much deeper and much more profound uh, reality and truth. So these rituals that they, that they perform, the Native Americans perform, literally evoked the physical presence of tricksters. That's attested to in their literature. That was what I was told by um, Lou White Eagle, rest his soul. He died, uh, I believe, two years ago. Great man. Uh, and other Native American shamans say the same thing. They are very careful with it and how they do it. They don't allow all of the people that are there to interact with it. Because again, it can mislead you and it can be very unbalancing to interact with a trickster. But if you can get by the trickster, it kind of opens up a portal and more powerful spiritual entities start coming through. So Jung's idea of an archetype, archetypes by definition are models. The word archetype means the original model or pattern after which all others are made. So what he, what he was saying is there was an original mandala, a whole, and it's splintered. And today we make symbols of it. People draw circles all the time. You'll find circles on petroglyphs and cave carvings. You find them all over the place. So that's literally what all that means. I know I've just went all over the place there. <laughs> no, that's We're sticking with you. We're hearing it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, and so it, it's interesting what you said about the trickster then, because then if we go back a little bit to what you're saying several minutes ago, uh, people who are just getting, who get into the paranormal, they kind of go one of two ways that either fall on their face and ruin their lives in some way, or they have a spiritual awakening. And it's kind of this idea that there's a trickster somewhere in there that they have to interact with. And if they're tricked, they fall over. Yeah, and some of them wander around. That trickster just keeps wandering around and leading them around and around and around. They never get anywhere. Right. You know, they hear little things here and there. They might see a shadow and all that, but they never get anywhere with it. And they keep doing it, and they can pretty much spend their entire life doing it. Um, Brad Steiger uh, wrote over 200 books. Now, uh, he's also deceased, as is Sherry, his wife, uh, and I knew them, a great man. Uh, Brad Steiger once wrote that uh, people get into the paranormal and they want to discover the secrets of the universe. And he said, but it's before they can actually balance a checkbook back in the days when people actually did balance a checkbook. But what he was saying is that you can't get into this stuff if you're unbalanced to start with. 
You have to have your feet on the ground. Otherwise, when you get into this, it will really unbalance you. No, what, no, no telling which direction it's going to take you in. But if you start out balanced, that's what it's all about. You can remain balanced. Uh, and you just got to you got to be careful in it and stay harmonious, which is what our purpose here was. Uh, you know, I told you about the upper world, the lower world, why the physical world was made. They say why we were here. We were put here on this physical plane to interact with the upper world and the lower world, the power of creation and entropy in order to maintain harmony and balance. That is why Native Americans are so much into ecology. Uh, they want the world to, uh, they want to conserve. They don't believe in destroying things. They believed that if in nature, you have to harmonize with. If you need to eat, that's fine. But you have to rever the animal that you're killing. Uh, and they literally prayed. If they killed an animal to eat, they prayed over it before they would eat it. Uh, they did the same things with trees. It's all part of nature. They didn't believe you could own land. In fact, we really don't own land. The idea we own land is ridiculous. Because if I don't pay the taxes on this house here behind me, uh, it, it's not mine. Technically, I'm renting it from the government. That's the way it feels. Uh, so uh, we don't really own it. But they said you can't own land. You can occupy it. You can occupy it. You can utilize the land. But you don't really own it. And you can move around kind of freely, but you don't really own it. Even the tribes didn't own it. They had territories of occupation, but they didn't really feel as if they owned it. When, when the first Europeans came in and began making treaties with them, every one of which we violated, and that's literally true. We, meaning my remote ancestors and probably all our remote ancestors who were here back then, violated every single treaty that was made. And it was the first time that the Native Americans ever conceived of owning land. You know, we said, you own the Black Hills, but they didn't. As we well know, they, they, they still don't own the Black Hills. Uh, so anyway, they also believed that uh, you could only use the resources that you needed. Don't overuse resources. They didn't kill things for fun. They just didn't do that. But all that was part of the fundamental belief system you have to remain in harmony with nature. And if you don't, you are putting your spiritual existence at risk. That is what they believed. It's interesting because we, we, you know, we, you just look around on a daily basis and you see balance everywhere. Um, and, you know, you're talking about uh, Native Americans hunting for food. And, you know, there's so many people out there hunting for sport and hunting animals that are endangered. I'm an activist for wolves. Uh, wolves were taken off a list uh, a year, two years ago. Uh, and they've been, hunters have been killing them for sport like crazy. Yeah. But the balance that I'm seeing now that you're talking about it uh, is you have these people who are out there hunting for sport and then you have people out there trying to protect them. And you're kind of meeting somewhere in the middle to some extent. Uh, there's always a battle for that balance, yeah. uh, but it's hard to maintain. Same thing with trees, same thing with nature. Mm -hmm. uh, it is, you know, we, we are trying to save the, the Amazon. It's kind of hypocritical since we, just, since we cut down, you know, trees in our country and pretty much did, did away mm -hmm. with it. But there's a reason why it's trying to be uh, maintained. Um, just about everything, you know, the, the thing about, uh, uh, I, I don't want to get into other stuff. I was going to go into another area, but it's irrelevant to this. So I won't. <laughs> yeah. 
the, the Native American stuff, uh, and let me tell you where all this leads. Okay, so UFOs, uh, I did a, a chapter that talks about contactees, the first contactee. Um, the first contactee uh, in all of my research was in the 1600s, a very famous man. He's not recognized as a contactee, but you have to take the, the real definition of contactee, which I take out of the Encyclopedia of UFOs. There were two of those, I actually wrote uh, four different entries in the second one. Uh, and the first one I did, and that's how I wound up writing them in the second one. But uh, a contactee is a person who claims that an alien being came to them, physically appeared, made contact with them, told them they were from another planet or another place in the universe, and told them that they were somehow um, influencing the affairs on Earth or that they had influenced the affairs on Earth. So that's the pure definition of a contactee. So if you go back to the biblical accounts, all right, a lot of people, uh, the ancient aliens people will say the biblical accounts were ancient aliens. Maybe they were. I'm not saying they weren't. But there's not a single biblical account where an angel appears to somebody and says, hey, I'm an alien from another planet. They're angels. Uh, they said they were spiritual beings from God, whatever, but they never said that they were from another planet. The same thing is true of the Vedic accounts. You go back to Babylonia, go back to India, doesn't matter. None of them said that we are from another planet. So the first real contactee, a person that, that said it, it was six... Uh, of whew, 1658. And he was in England at the time. He was from Sweden. He was a nobleman. He was a scientist who had written dozens of books. He was with the Swedish government. He was one of their top officials in science. He had been offered the top teaching position at the main university of Sweden, which he refused because he didn't like giving talks. Uh, the man traveled alone, and he was England on official. He was in England on official business in London. He ate alone. He enjoyed the company of the ladies. That was part of his moral dilemma. Uh, I wanted to write a bit about that in the book, but decided I would not. Uh, plus, I went way over the word count that they gave us, so I wound up cutting about half of what I wrote out of it, as Andrew did too. Uh, but anyway, his his alien encounter started in this tavern. He was in a separate room because he was so well known. He sat down to eat and suddenly on a, in a uh, chair right across from him, a man appeared. A man, just, whoa, a man appeared in front of him, just materialized. And the man said this, these are the exact words. And how do we know this is because it's in the guy's diary. He kept voluminous diaries. And the man said, don't eat too much. That was it. But it terrified him. He jumped out of his chair, ran to his hotel. Uh, there are accounts of what went on in his room that night, mainly from the uh, London police, because the London police were called to his room. Uh, some disturbance happened his, into, in his room. They were worried about him. They came to his room. He was all right. They stationed one of the cops outside of his room for the night. But it was the next night when he made an entry in his diary and he was still in the room. Uh, he went out and ate a course, and then the next night he went to his room. And the man, as he laid down, the moment he laid down in bed, this man appeared in this bubble of purple light. This light bubble appeared. The guy had on a huge purple robe, 
And he sat down and told him, I'm going to open your mind. And what he told him was that he was from another planet, that they would be visiting him. And they proceeded to visit him the next 28 years repeatedly over and over and over. He wrote books about it that are available. One is called Earths in the Universe. Uh, I think you can get reprints on Amazon. In Earths in the Universe, he describes them. They look just like us. They live on the moon, Venus, Mars, uh, go all the way out to Saturn. They took him for rides to the other planets. They told him there were beings like them everywhere else, and they'd been here for all time. They'd been visiting, and they were uh, influencing what happened here on Earth. And that guy's name was Emanuel Swedenborg. Very, very famous. He is buried in a crypt. Uh, it is a crypt in the main chapel in Uppsala, Sweden, uh, which I've been to. There's also about 500 mounds in Uppsala that look identical to mounds here in the United States. Uh, Swedenborg later, and if you, if you read modern interpretations, they say, oh, well, he had a spiritual experience and he was hallucinating or whatever. But in his writings, Swedenborg said, I reached out, I touched them, I hugged them. They were as physically real as you and I. It, I was with complete waking. We walked together in different places. But anyway, he was the first contactee. So here's what I say about that. Just like the modern contactees, most of the modern contactees give a quite similar story. Their stories, though, are that a saucer lands and sometimes a tall, beautiful Nordic woman would walk out. Sometimes uh, it would be someone who looks like us. Sometimes it would be somebody with a big bubble head. Sometimes they'd be in spacesuits. They would say they're from Venus or Mars or Jupiter or Saturn or a moon somewhere here in the solar system. Maybe the hidden planet Clarion or some other planet. And they always had the same message that you people are destroying yourself. You're going to destroy yourself with nuclear weapons. And that's why I'm here. So here's my point. Those are all trickster experiences. How do we know that? The entities lied. Uh, if you read Swedenborg and the others, Swedenborg said the moon is covered with cities just like the earth is. He said that Mars is covered with cities just like the earth is. Uh, he said that they're on all these planets. They're on Saturn. Uh, sorry. Uh, I mean, I can't buy that. We know pretty well that there's not people like us that look just like us and cities like us, like we have on Mars. Maybe there were millions of years ago, but they certainly weren't in the last hundred years or so. So we know that whatever these entities are, they're misleading. They're not telling us precisely the truth. Now, there are some cases of people where these entities appear and they do some rather profound things. Uh, so I, in the book, I cite three cases where these entities appear and there's more, but I cited only three. One uh, was the story of uh, St. Joan of Arc, Joan of Arc did remarkable things. There actually was one witness who saw 
the globes of light that she spoke with and saw the beings in the globes of light. And they gave Joan a whole bunch of prophecies that were true. And they told her things that were true. They told her to do things that we know were accurate. Even the time frame that they gave Joan, they told her that here's when you must begin and end. Every bit of that is true and totally documented in history, completely documented. Even the finding of a sword by her. If you watch the movie of Joan of Arc, you'll see that she found a sword in the, uh, out in a meadow. That's not true. Joan told uh, some of her followers to go to a very specific church in France to lift a stone up behind an altar, a very specific stone. And there she would, they would find this sword and they should bring it to her. They did it. It's documented. The sword was there. No way she could have known that. There's no way she could have known that in the very first battle, she'd be wounded by an arrow, but would survive. Uh, no way. And at the very end, though, the very end of the story, she went beyond what they told her to do. And it's kind of like if you do more than what these entities, the real entities go beyond the trickster, you go back to the trickster again. You become influenced by it. Edgar Casey was the second example. Edgar Casey was not a prophet. He never said he was a prophet. But Edgar Casey did some remarkable stuff that is truly inexplicable. Casey, however, gave some of his readings that were wrong. There's some real specific things. And I'm very much into Edgar Casey, lifetime member as my wife is. My wife was on the board of trustees, was the chairperson of the board of trustees till last year. Uh, we wrote books that the uh, Casey organization's imprint, ARE Press, published. Uh, did, the, did the search for Atlantis with the Casey organization for 10 years in the Bahamas, made 25 trips down there with under them. But it's because I'm very honest about it and straightforward that I can say, yeah, Casey made some errors. When did he do it? When the motivations were wrong. That's very clear. The third example I gave, which very few people know about, are the apparitions at Zaytun, Egypt that began uh, that ended really in the 1970s, in the early 1970s, and they lasted over a two-year period, seen by millions of people, thousands of photographs, uh, lots and lots of documentation of an apparition that occurred on Our Lady, uh, Our Lady, uh, not Our Lady of Sorrows. <laughs> I can't remember the exact name. Now I've been to the church. I actually talked to the initial witnesses to the phenomenon. Uh, who astounding, it's an astounding place filled every night with people because these apparitions were so impressive and so real. So what did they see? Lights it, on the, this, this church is weird. It has these steeples that look like they're off balance, but they're not. It's just bizarre the way it's made. So it started April 2nd, I want to say 1969. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that happened. And these mechanics across the street from it, Muslim mechanics, saw this, what they thought was a nun, because she had on this white glow, this white flowing robe, moving around on one of the steeples, and they thought the nun is going to commit suicide. So they ran inside, talked to the priest. Uh, one of them called an ambulance. The ambulance came. The priest came out. By that time, it was gone. But immediately, they, uh, people who were Christians said, maybe that was an apparition. So starting the very next night, April 3rd, 
thousands of people started coming, then tens of thousands, and then hundreds of thousands. And they all described the same thing. There were nights where this went on the entire night. A massive burst of light came off one of these steeples at the top. Massive burst. It's a dome. And then out of this massive burst of light, it's like a blob, almost a blob of what I call a plasma. And this blob of plasma, it had something split off in it that looked like doves, huge, gigantic doves that began almost flying around it. And then there was what looked like an apparition of the Virgin Mary. It was solid. It was colorful. It moved. It waved to the crowd. It blew kisses. At times it sat on, this went on over a year now. At times it sat down on the top of this dome, cradling an infant. There's also photographs that show that it had a crown, a glowing crown around its head. Uh, scientists studied it too. Um, there's literature in American psychological publications about it. And they say, yeah, something really happened. They said they're plasma discharges. But why they formed into what clearly looks like the Virgin Mary, people can go online. We put some of the pictures of the photos of this in the book. But if you go online and search Zeitun, Z-E-I-T-O-U-N apparitions, you will see thousands of photographs, again, totally documented. The church came to document it, uh, as did the Egyptian government, because it scared them. The secular Egyptian government, which was um, Muslim, came and looked at it and said, yes, something very real is going on. So they allowed it to occur pretty much, and then it ended after about a year. So that was the third thing. So what we call these, we think a lot of UFO reports are the same thing. We think a lot of uh, people that see these glowing entities, there are lots of scientific studies, uh, some of the ones done in Yakima, Washington State, some of them done in uh, Missouri during the Missouri UFO flap that occurred from 1967 till roughly 1981 or so, although it still goes on from time to time. In Missouri, it was the study was conducted by the chairperson, chairman, I guess I'll call him because he was a man, of the physics department of Southeastern Missouri State University, Harley Rutledge. Uh, Rutledge uh, formed a team and had hundreds of people, including astronomers, physicists, graduate students, go out and set up stations to try and find out what all these lights were, what are people saying, what are they interacting with, what are the beings they're interacting with, Rutledge concluded that they are some type of plasma, but plasma that has an intelligence and interacts with us. That's what Rutledge concludes. That's the same thing the scientists that worked at Yakima in Washington State concluded in their research, too. These are plasmas. And when people got close to them, it's a Native American reservation, the Yakima Tribal Reservation. And there's this one ridge called Toppenish Ridge. And they would see these huge balls of light come rolling down Toppenish Ridge. And there's these little houses, pretty much shacks, that live at the base of it. And then there's farming down on the bottom land. And they all reported, well, there were 19 Bigfoot sightings during this. They reported Bigfoot. They reported seeing giant people dressed very oddly. They saw UFOs all over the place. There were lots of scientists that saw them. There were lots of uh, fire outlook people that saw them. 
but they concluded that there's some sort of intelligent plasma also. So in 2007, this is in the book, 2007, in the Journal of, um, gosh, can't remember the exact title. I need, I need to make sure I get this right. I can't quote science. Oh, yeah. The, the Journal of New Physics, uh, seven physicists wrote an article, and they had been studying plasmas. Plasmas are the fourth state of matter, solids, liquids, gas. When I was in school, that was it, because <laughs> I'm, I'm old. Uh, that was it. But, but we know there's a fourth state of matter now. It's plasma. Plasma, when I first learned about it, and that was in the 19, late 60s, plasma at that time was only known to be a superheated, charged ball of gas. That is no longer what it is. Uh, it is a ball of energy, of swirling electrons that have been ripped, ripped from atoms. And it has, uh, it's formed uh, many ways, it's formed naturally. But in 2007, a group of physicists, like I said, seven, seven of them published this study. They reported the same thing that, that Andrew Collins and I have been arguing basically since the 1980s. They said plasma appears to have intelligence. It appears to be alive. It appears to reproduce. And it has all of the, all of the characteristics of, of life. How did they observe this? So I'll tell you. When the plasmas formed, <clears throat> they literally observed what appeared to be a double helix form in its interior. A double helix is what human DNA is made out of. So what you have, you have two long carbohydrate chains or starch chains, chains and then there are roughly three billion links, like on a ladder. Each link is made of two amino acids that click together. So you have like a ladder with the rails and you have two amino acids clicking together. So there's three billion of those. Well, they observed that being formed inside the plasma. And as, this, as, it, as it curled together into the helix, they watched it split just like human DNA when we reproduce it splits and it replicates itself. They observed that happening and they observed the plasmas forming additional plasmas, reproduction. They saw, and, uh, they saw evolution occurring. Evolution, they said, occurred this way. There were some crystalline structures that were weak, physically weak. They didn't appear to form as solidly and the plasma didn't appear to have as much energy. Those literally died out. The stronger ones, where they had the, the much more strong and well-made helix in them, they survived and they replicated, which they said was evolution. And what they said is, we believe that if we gave them enough energy and enough time, that they would literally become alive like us. And they believed that they also had intelligence, and that is they could interact with being observed. So that is what we know about plasmas. So my theory in this, I know we're coming down to the end and I've talked the whole time. So <laughs> is that, am I correct? Are we coming down to the last few minutes here? Or you, well, yeah, what are we we're, do? we're getting close to the end, but absolutely. Yeah. Uh, okay. Wrap up your, your thoughts. I will. So my theory, I call them time beings, time spelled T-I-I-M-E. 
and it stands for transient intrusions of intelligent manifesting energy. Andrew calls them end beings. Andrew goes deeper and speculates about uh, quantum mechanics, quantum physics, string theory, uh, all those things. He tries to explain it with that. I stayed away from that and left that to him. But my idea is this. They're transient because they're temporal. They never land and stay there. You know, if one of these entities appears, you can't drag it in to see your mother. You can't take it to class. They don't last very long. They're temporary. So it's transient. It's an intrusion because it pops into our reality. It just appears. It intrudes into our reality. It's intelligent. It's very clear they have intelligence because they interact with us. And they usually have a message just like an angel does. Uh, and it is manifesting energy. The energy appears to be plasma-based, and I think it comes, I think it is natural energy that occurs all over the universe, but it is spiritual energy from the Native American perspective, and it's the essence of everything, and it interacts with us a lot, and that is what people who are in the paranormal are chasing. Well, that's, there you go. that's yeah. That's fascinating. That's really interesting to think about. And it's hard to wrap, like hard to wrap your mind around uh, in a way. And we've never heard like some, like this particular side of the story, you know, of, of what it is we're investigating and stuff. So that's just really interesting. Well, plasmas can take on a physical form. The U S Navy has already proven that uh, yeah. project project Condine uh, that the British government conducted their, their secret UFO study that was released in 2006 because of Freedom of Information Act. Project Condine just said that all the UFOs and all of it is caused by what they called exotic and dusty plasmas. Exotic plasma and dusty plasma becomes a physical form. It literally is the energy that pulls in so much physicality and rips so many electrons off of physical objects like dust, cosmic dust, anything it can grab, and it forms itself into a real physical form. That's what Project Condine said they were, too. Hmm. So that's what I think people are chasing in the paranormal. Uh, you can chase the trickster. But you have to have the right motivations. You have to check your own motivations, your own. Yeah, you really got to check how you're doing it and what you're doing. Otherwise, the, the interactions can be extremely unbalancing or they will lead you down a rabbit hole that you'll never find the bottom of. All right, Greg. Well, it is, it is time to let you go. So I wanted to give you a chance to tell everybody where they can find your books, this book. Uh, find you the mic's all yours well uh the best way to find me it's really easy and it's it's uh go to google put in my whole name gregory put the initial l little gregory l little put that l in there if you put in greg little you get football players in the first two pages there's two current nfl players with that name but if you put my initial in the first four or five pages are me everything is there you can even see my uh curriculum vita there uh, and you'll see links to the books. Uh, the newest book is called Denisovan Origins, available everywhere May 10th. Um, that's, that's when the physical book comes out. It's available now in Kindle and all the audios, uh, but it, it'll be everywhere then. But find me on Google. Uh, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, but it's easier to find me on Google. Uh, so that's it. Uh, it's been a pleasure, guys. I appreciate it very much. And sorry I talked the whole time. <laughs> 
no, that's, that's good. That's, that's good. Absolutely we, I mean, fine. Yeah. We, we like to get out as much information as possible and hear as much as we can. So thank you for that. Well, yeah. you're welcome. Sometime we'll do it again. And maybe Andrew will come on and give you his half. All right. Sounds good. So he goes to All the right. beginning of shamanism. Andrew goes back to 400,000 years ago when the when archaeology has discovered the very first shaman that we know of and that dude was in israel and that was discovered by israeli archaeologists just a few years ago and andrew starts the book by his trip to israel to the university and then going to that specific site and the flat tires and the problems they had getting into the site uh handling the artifacts and so on so it's a fascinating read uh, it's it's probably the most interesting thing that I've ever been involved with. So, yeah, I think it's a good book. Uh, I probably if I didn't think it was a good book, believe it or not, I'd say, yeah, it's OK, but I've done better. But no, this is it. <laughs> so thanks again for having me on, guys. I appreciate it very much. Well, thank you. Right, well, we appreciate you. it, too. OK, take care. Right, bye bye. All right. All right, folks, that was Greg Little, co-author of Origins of the Gods. Um, we are going to go to Eric's Random Fact of the Day, a quick commercial, and we will be right back with Paratruth Radio. Now, Eric's Random Fact of the Day. Did you know that avocados were named after reproductive organs? According to ReadersDigest.com, you'll never look at avocados the same way again. That's because indigenous people of Mexico and Central America use the Nahuatl word, ahuacado, to mean both testicles and avocado. The fruits were originally marketed as alligator pears in the United States until the current name stuck. This was Eric's Random Back to the Day. In a world infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on. It wasn't that bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Paratruth Radio. As always, my name is Eric. And I'm Justin. We just got off the line with Greg Little, and we have got a lot of information that we could discuss here because we had learned some new things, uh, which is actually pretty rare for us to come Mm -hmm. across something like really new. Uh, But there were some really new concepts uh, that were just very fascinating. I mean, I don't even know where to begin, to be honest with you. Uh, well, he brought up plasmas and um, yes. something that in in the paranormal community, um, you and I have kind of researched or discussed is ectoplasm. And um, <laughs> yeah, yep. that's getting a little choked up about all of that or... <laughs> Sorry, I took a sip of my drink and it went down the wrong pipe. <laughs> um, Sorry, everybody. But that that kind of goes along that line. Uh, I mean, 
literally what he described as plasmas is what we would describe as ectoplasm. Maybe right. not that whole uh not DNA. to the same extent, like the, right. the the form and everything like that. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I know we've seen uh, ectoplasm in photos and occasion occasionally in video. Primarily, we feel it, um, mm -hmm. but to the extent in which uh, Greg described it, you know, that's it, it is. It's similar to me in a way, and it'd be it would be incredible if that it'd be like an episode of Ghostbusters or sorry, an episode uh, mm -hmm. like a Ghostbusters movie, you know, like walking in yeah. and seeing these plasm figures uh, just walking around or doing whatever. Um, or just forming out of midair. Or just like forming. Yeah. Which, you know, and we've talked about spirits forming obviously and using energy to generate. Uh, and there were a couple of things we didn't get to talk to him about, unfortunately, just because we ran out of time here. Um, but, you know, he also in the book is uh, they discuss EMF. Uh, electromagnetic mm -hmm. field and how right. the earth provides you know kind of creates its own but then there's also human made uh or human generated uh emf because of all the appliances and phones and you know all the electronics that we have and he, I, reading that section i i started wondering whether or not emf is even something we should worry or bother detecting during paranormal investigations because there's so much emf coming in from so many different directions and much of that emf actually causes uh psychological problems uh hallucinations and whatnot i'm starting to think maybe emf is something we need to steer away from in our own investigations anyway because can we really truly track uh spirit entity through emf when there's just so much and it's such a broad thing in our in our world today well maybe in the actual investigation itself but you should be measuring EMF, kind of like how we get a base level EMF. You should be measuring EMF to see if that is what's causing people to think they have paranormal activity. Because well, like you just sure, said, it causes yes. a psychological uh, effect. Yes, I, so, I do agree with you on that. There, There is that. Um, but yeah, I, I meant more specifically in the investigation. You no, know, yeah. Use EMF yeah, to try to locate a possible... Uh, disturbance by an entity. Uh, if we find a high EMF reading that maybe there wasn't one in the base readings, we're like, oh, there must be a spirit forming here. Maybe there is. Um, but that's just an assumption because, I mean, for all we know, and I don't know the full science behind it, but, you know, the earth generating its own EMF, it, it's fully possible that it generates uh, kind of like, um, I can think of the word like it kind of sparks the EMF at certain areas at certain times or it kind of moves. Um, so if we, you know, do an EMF reading of my room right now of the office that I'm in and there's no reading, it's just zero all the way around. But then all of a sudden there's a reading of, you know, I don't know, let's just say five milligosters or something, you know, mm. is that a spirit? I mean, is that just the Earth's energy field shifting in some way? Like, what is the actual balance of EMF? And can we truly trust it? Uh, are we just being misled by natural phenomena? And I guess that's the whole point of the paranormal investigations. But I feel like when we follow the EMFs, it possibly could be leading us the, the wrong way. Um, you know, depending. I don't, I don't really know. But it's, it's something that I was thinking about reading this book. Well, just like everything else in the paranormal, you have to kind of co-link everything together. Um, mm -hmm. it, you you do have a very good point, though, because you've brought up before, you know, 
is there really such a thing as coincidence? Um, but I mean, it could be coincidental that at the same time that you get an EVP, somebody has a personal experience and then your EMF goes off. The EMF could have just been going off. Like you said, the fluctuation of the earth's EMF field. Um, you, you got too close to somebody's cell phone, which I think is a huge importance as to why you should not be having your, your phone or, or any type mm -hmm. of personal device on a paranormal investigation, because as paranormal investigator, investigators, um, you're already using so much EMF with the equipment that you're using. Right. Let alone the cell phones or, or whatever else you're adding into it. Right. Um, one more thing I want to touch on real quick here before we uh, wrap out. Um, and he's talking a lot about these, these, these plasmas that were showing up and they were scientifically tested and it was realized there's a realization that there was a, uh, like an intelligence behind it, the Virgin Mary, for example. And he's talking about that, mm -hmm. um, having the crowd and everything. And there are these, you know, was it thousands and hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of people you know, seeing this, even with the, the UFO that he was talking about, I forget what he, what, do you remember the name of it? Uh, the, the, the first story he told us about the UFO that he and his wife went to see, and he was checking to see oh, if there was anyone um, taking notes. I, I can't remember what, where okay, it was. So we can't what remember, but I'm sure about. if any of you listening that are like, you know, have better memories than our own, <laughs> you probably know what we're talking about. Um, but you know, it really reminds me of the idea, uh, behind, um, basically the the visualization of something or the belief in something coming true mm -hmm. because of the amount right. of energy we're putting out you know so you know in the case of the virgin mary you know is it this thing lasted a year and did it last because it 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 wanted to last that long or was it the power of all these people believing in it that manifested uh that plasma you know that that was created and took form like what do we really know that uh, and at the moment, I don't think we do. Uh, I think there's still a lot of discussion and debate behind the idea of forming something or making something become real based on our own imagination. And I know we've talked about it with like Slender Man in the past or mm -hmm. you know, some other spiritual beings. It's usually spiritual beings. Um, but yeah, I, I just had a like, as you talking about that, I was, that's something I was thinking about. Like, it's fascinating. There's so many people and this thing is just you know coming around more and more and more and is it because of these people and it took a year so did it eventually die out because people started you know it kind of just people Got drifted to other things it, right. you know they started pulling away i don't know um but nonetheless it, it's it's very interesting concept no but i mean yeah i mean exactly what he said is something we've talked about for however many years now um the the idea that thought can become reality mm -hmm. um now, I mean, whether that's an entity taking that thought or, or, you know, you're talking about whatever it is you're afraid of or whatever and it, it manifesting as such, um, the the most in, important and intriguing part of that was him bringing up the plasmas and that there was an actual definition for what, whatever it was used to to take that form and mm -hmm. um with that i mean with that being said how, how many of these entities that we talk about today bigfoot loch ness monster extraterrestrials 
Chupacabra, Chupacabra is a huge one. Um, when we when we had um, uh, Ben Radford on to talk about his book about the Chupacabra, and that originally the Chupacabra was brought up first and foremost by a woman who saw the movie Species and then saw something, mm-hmm. whatever it was, mm-hmm. and it 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 was so close to the description of the the alien and species that it was almost indistinguishable but was it just this woman being afraid and and seeing something or was it she was creating something from that fear in her mind you know and then this right. whatever created a plasma that looked like that Paranormal, always leaving us with more questions and answers. <laughs> even, even more so this book compared to other ones we've had in the recent past. Um, Paranormal is such a tease. <laughs> and the people that write about it are just egging us on. Um, <laughs> but uh, definitely check out Andrew Collins and Greg Little's book, Origins of the Gods. Uh, as Eric has said, I mean, it, it's... It, it's in- interesting, it's intriguing, and, and it just brings up way so many more questions than answers. Um, but I, maybe that's the whole point of all this, to keep trying to get to the truth, is to just keep uh, us asking those questions. Um, that's pretty much it, I think, That's for the origin of the gods. But uh, make sure you're checking out all of the... Uh, different shows we've got coming up. Um, of course, I didn't have this pulled up before we started here, but we've got cryptid stuff coming. We've got um, Lady Anne, who is a identifies as a vampire and, and a witch, and I believe she's a psychic medium or has gifts as well. Um, next week, we're going to be talking to John Michael Greer about the twilight of Pluto, astrology, and the rise and fall of planetary influence. Um, and after that, we're going to be talking to Ronessa Avila. We're going to be talking to Richard Freeman about cryptids. Um, so many great stuff coming up for Paratruth Radio. Make sure you're checking out... Um, Killer Podcasts and Evergreen Podcasts as well. A lot of great stuff being added to there. But until next week, folks, where you will find us same time, same channel. My name is Justin. And I'm Eric. Peace. This is
Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) Right.